0: We're starting a series today on discipleship. It's an eight-part series. And if you have been here any length of time, you know that it's our typical thing that we start in the first verse of a book and we go to the end in the last verse of the book. So we started in Daniel chapter 1. And we move through Daniel chapter 12, and we just finished that last week. So we want to stay in the text. And the last thing we want to do is say, hey, let's talk about discipleship. And when we talk about discipleship, we're going to say whatever we want, but we're going to find some Bible principles to back it up. And we become uh, off-kilter a little bit if we do things that way. So what we want to do is pick eight passages that teach about discipleship, and start at the beginning of that passage and go to the end of that passage and teach the principles that that passage teaches us about discipleship. And then we'll do that for the next eight weeks, and we'll learn together, hopefully, uh, about how to follow Jesus together. The word disciple means learner. So discipleship implies that we have been, uh, well, it, it commands, it demands that we are in Christ Jesus and committing ourselves to a process of learning of his ways. So we want to learn more of Him. That's our our plan and our hope, and that's what discipleship is really all about. Uh, If you take out your bulletins, you see that the, the front cover of the bulletin every week says that the purpose of this church is to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ that is the word discipleship. That's the hope and dream. It's the vision of the church that all of us would follow Christ closer together. And the means by which we do that is teaching the word. That's why, by the way, life groups are studying what, what is taught on Sunday mornings. And we're trying to say, look, that's good. We heard it. We understand it. And life groups is asking the questions, are we doing it? And so if you want a place where the Word is unpacked and where you're going to, someone's going to kind of, not get in your face, but, but look at you and say, are you doing what you learned on Sunday? Are you actually doing that in your life? That's the plan of Life Groups, that we would take the sermon, we would put it in, in practice uh, throughout the week. And uh, so that's the heart of the series, and uh, over the course of the next uh, seven weeks after today, we'll really dig deep in there. So with, with that in mind, we're going to pray And, uh, excuse me, we're going to read the scripture, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll jump right in. So let's let's read this passage. Uh, I'll read it. You can follow along. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. just as you have placed all the authority in Jesus, Lord, we know that the hope for our changing and being transformed comes from the word and your spirit convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Oh, would you help us? We're needy. We're dependent on you to move, to make us grow in, in Christ. And so we're asking that you would meet with us this morning and that we would meet with you face to face. Lord, nobody here is the consummate disciple. All of us say, follow Jesus as so far as I follow Jesus. And so Jesus is still at the front of the discipleship. All that we do and say and think, we want to become like him. And we know that your spirit will produce the fruit of the Spirit in us as we pursue Jesus together. And so we pray for help. Meet with us, teach us, encourage our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we start this, uh, this process, the, the master plan of evangelism, and we start this series together, I'm just going to kind of walk through uh, uh, two sentences this morning, and the first one I'm going to throw out there immediately, it's actually half a sentence, and we'll pick up the second half of the sentence in a minute, that since the resurrected Christ has been given all authority, well, we should probably have a little dot, dot, dot thing, and we'll pick that up in a minute, but we see that in verses 16 through 18. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And we see the first thing I want to kind of point out is that disciples obey the Lord. Jesus had directed them what to do, and they didn't argue, they did not not show up. They took initiative so that they could obey the command of their Lord. You and I aren't called to debate commands with jesus we 're not called to negotiate what we feel like doing or want to do we 're called to obey what he 's called us to do and in his very first verse, his disciples obeyed him. If you look at the, the verses here in, in matthew twenty eight uh, verse sixteen we even wonder how do they know exactly where to go in Galilee If you look back in, in verse uh, 8 and 9 and 10, Jesus had appeared to Mary and the other Mary after they realized that he had risen from the dead. And so the two women were walking in the road and, well, let's just pick it up in verse 8. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings, I would have loved to have seen that from this point in history. If I would seen it myself, I would have probably just passed out, seeing Jesus, him saying greetings. But now, knowing he's the resurrected Christ, and thinking about these two women running down the road, and him just saying, hello, hello, greetings, greetings to you, that was, that's a shocker, you know? So they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And so we have this picture of these women laying on the ground before him in the dirt, probably their fingers you know, feeling the scars still on his feet. He had just risen from the dead a few days earlier than that. And so here they are. They're worshiping him in the dirt on the street. And again, now back in verse 10, then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So apparently Jesus told these women, hey, you know, kind of you know the place. Or he told them maybe more than he's letting on. Either that or they had this little crag, this little knoll in the mountain where they always met together. Regardless of that, the word came to his disciples, get ready, let's go meet Jesus. And his disciples went and obeyed that command. All right. So they went to meet him and they met him at the place. Look at verse 17. Now we're back in Matthew chapter 28. Not only did his disciples obey him, but they worshipped him. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So here we have them coming before their Lord in worship, bowing before him, in essence saying, I make much of you with my life. That's what worship means. I, I, my life ascribes worth to your name. So that's what the disciples were about here as they bowed before him, giving their, their heart, their life to, to Christ and, and, and worshiping him there. Um, we don't necessarily know how many people were present here. When it says that some doubted, we don't know if, we're not certain that it's some of the 11 that doubted. It could have been that this is, remember in 1 Corinthians 15, verse uh, 6, it says that there's this time where Jesus, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says there's these various times where Jesus appeared to all these different people after his death, after his resurrection. So he's raised from the dead, and he appears to the 11. He appears to various people at various times. Well, there's one part in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, it says he appeared to 500. And there are some scholars that think that this passage we're reading right here is probably the time when he appeared to the 500. That the word got out not only to his capital D disciples, the apostles, but the word got out to all those who followed him, all the little d disciples like you and me, and, and there was a big crowd of people that gathered there to listen to what Jesus was going to say. We're not sure of that, but it's certainly possible. But some doubted. It doesn't mean that some didn't think this was the, that, that Jesus had risen from the dead. That's not what it means. Doubt, the word doubt there means some hesitated. Some were waiting and didn't know what to think, and there's a million reasons for them to be hesitating in this moment as Jesus appears to them. First things first is they're gathered in this little knoll on the mountain, and probably Jesus was coming. There's one translation uh, where verse uh, 18, it says, as Jesus came closer, to, he said to them. And the concept is that he was far off, and maybe people were hesitating because they were kind of squinting and going, uh, is that Jesus? Remember the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus walked with him for quite a while and didn't even recognize him in his resurrected state? So his body may have changed somewhat and he was less recognizable. So don't think that that word doubt there means that there, there's these people that just still weren't sure that this was the Messiah. What it means is there was a hesitation in their heart saying, mm, is this him? Here, here's the other thing that, that may have given them reason for hesitation is what does this mean? So he, he died, Jesus raised the third day, is he going to stay with us now? Is he going to, okay, so now that he's defeated death, why doesn't he just set up shop with us and we could reign with him? The 11 connecting with him, here we are, this superpower team. And so there are some that are hesitating from that perspective too, saying, okay, he's risen, even if he is risen and he, and he has, and he, if this is him and, and it is, what next? And so they're hesitating in that respect. And so his disciples, they worshiped him, and some doubted. This idea of worship, guys, is is powerful in this context, that they are ascribing worth to his name. A learner submits himself fully to his Lord. And that brings up the first question for me. Am I, as a learner of Jesus Christ, fully submitted to him as the Lord of my life? In the area of attitude, in the area of the words that I use, in the area of actions, in the area of my opinions. Boy, we live in a world right now where so many people want to say, Jesus is my Lord, but I disagree with him on all these topics. Listen, if you, if Jesus is your Lord, then his opinion on every topic rules the day in your heart. And so I don't get to say I'm following after Jesus, but in this social situation or in this social issue, I disagree with what he says. We don't have that option. Because if he is the Lord, that means he is over us and he commands us to have his opinion and, and glorify him in terms of what we do. So in the area of actions, attitudes, opinions, emotions. Nobody, nobody's laying before the Lord Jesus here worshiping and saying, okay, okay, listen, Jesus is uh, my Lord, but I refuse. There are certain areas that I refuse to obey him in. For instance, some, some of my friends might say, you know what, I'm, a normally, I'm just an anxious person. And I can't get over that. And Jesus would say, listen, if you're laying before me, and your hands are outstretched, and you're saying that I'm your Lord, then let me speak into your life. Be anxious for nothing. But submit all of your needs to me by prayer and supplication day by day. And so it's not that you can't be struggling with that anxiety. It's not that you can't admit that you have that issue that drives you to your feet. It's that you can't hold on to it and say, I refuse to let your, your lordship speak into my life. And so as these disciples were coming before their, their lord Jesus Christ, they were coming into a place where they're saying, Lord, my whole life, it's all yours. You're the lord. You're the one who rules over. I worship you. I lay before you. And my life is intended to ascribe worth to your name. The disciples worshipped him. Do you? At that moment where you've got pad and paper open and you're before the presence of the Lord saying, this is the area of my life as I lay before you today that I know I struggle with the most. Lord, help me with this. So many times I think we, we know we are keeping areas of our life and we're asking him to do something that he's asking us to do. So, Lord, help me forgive this person. Jesus doesn't, you know, in, in Matthew chapter 5 and 6, when he's doing the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gets done with the Lord's Prayer, and when he's done with the Lord's Prayer, he looks into the eyes of his disciples, and he doesn't say, and by the way, ask me to help you forgive people, because that's going to be hard for you. He doesn't say that. He says, He says, The way you forgive others is the way my Father in heaven will forgive you. And that leaves us to not say, Lord, as I'm in your presence, help me forgive someone. The reality is he's commanded you to forgive people if you've been forgiven. He has called you to forgive. And so this area of your life, if that's your area, grudge holding and not forgiving people for what they've done to you, and we lay before him and say, oh, Lord, help me. Yeah, ask him to help you, but can I remind you? He's commanded you to do it and not sit around and saying, well, if the Lord ever helps me someday, I'll do it. He's called you to do it. He's your Lord. So we obey him. And we could give countless examples of us in this scenario. Jesus has spent these years with his disciples, and he has taught them. And uh, they lay before him now to worship him and to make much of him. And so which areas of my life, my actions, attitudes, opinions, need to be submitted to Jesus? Well, Jesus is... The authoritative one. Since the resurrected Christ has been given all authority, right? We want to look at the authority that he's been given. Take a look again at 17. They, uh, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, and again, he's coming closer now and teaching them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I wish I could go back and rephrase that. Since the resurrected Christ has been given all authority, I would just say since, since Christ has been given all authority. And the reason I would change the wording is because Jesus had all the authority all the time. All of Matthew has been teaching us he has authority. In Matthew chapter 4, he has authority over temptation as he stands in the word. In Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, he teaches us about anxiety, and he has, a, he has uh, authority over human emotion. Cast all your cares on me, he says, right? Don't be anxious for anything. And so right through all of Matthew, we have story after story after story uh, over human destiny. There's a wide gate, and there's a narrow gate. And to some, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus has authority over, the, uh, over human uh, destiny. Jesus, Jesus has authority over Jewish disease. Remember, he would go around and he would heal, and he started with healing Jewish people of their sickness. Leprosy was the first thing. And as he healed him, he was showing his disciples, I have authority over everything. And then there was the Gentile who came. Remember, he uh, was the centurion, and he had somebody far away. And Jesus said, listen, I'm going to come and heal him. And the centurion said, don't come. I know you can just say the word. And Jesus showed that he has authority over Gentile sickness. Right? He has authority over uh, wind and wave. And so in, in Matthew chapter 8, we have the story of him on the, the seas. And it is crazy. And even the sailors are freaking out because it is so tumultuous and up and down. And they come to him and he speaks. Calm. Be still. And his disciples say, What, what kind of man is this? That the wind and waters?" obey him. What's he doing? He's showing his disciples that he has authority over wind and wave, nature, everything. In Matthew chapter 8, a little further, we have a person who has a spirit within him, and Jesus casts out the spirit. What's he doing? He's showing his disciples. He has authority over the spirit realm. He is the Lord over that. And so we continue. Uh, what about this? Remember, he, on the Sabbath, he heals somebody, and the Pharisees do not like that, and they confront him, and he says, Well, what's easier, for me to heal somebody or to tell this man that he should get up because his sins are forgiven? Jesus has authority over forgiving sins. His authority over everything. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, let me just remind you that Jesus didn't claim to have authority because he rose again. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father before he raised again, before he was risen the third day. And if we could go back, and we can, to uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. It seems like it's the theme verse of the last couple years of this church. Daniel 7, 14 says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom over all peoples, nations, and languages, excuse me, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus is saying, "Uh, I've been telling you that I'm the Son of Man, and now in being raised from the dead the third day? I'm just telling you again, those verses were talking about me. I'm the one who has a kingdom that rules over the world. I'm the one whose kingdom will never pass away. And we come to this incredible reality that this risen Savior was standing before them. And so the disciples could even say, look, we knew he had authority over life and death. We watched him raise uh, Jairus' daughter, we watched him raise the son of the widow uh, at, at, at the city Nain. So we saw him take a dead body and bring that dead body back to life in Jairus and the widow at Nain and in Lazarus. Three times we saw him raise uh, the dead. But wait a second. This is new territory. He doesn't have just power over life and death of other people. He can be dead himself and have victory over it forever. And Jesus is in their presence saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and his disciples have seen it. They know it to be true, and it's all coming together for them. They see who this Jesus is. Guys, all authority in the universe belongs to Jesus Christ. While he lived in this world, he was fully God. So don't think of Jesus as, boy, he emptied himself of stuff. When we read Philippians 2, Jesus didn't empty himself of his deity to become to this earth. He was fully God. He didn't empty of himself of something else. You know, we sing a, a hymn that says he emptied himself of all but love. no he didn't empty himself, right? He veiled his right to call on his full deity. He, he voluntarily veiled that right for a little while, but it was always there in fullness. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm risen from the dead, and I'm taking that veil, and I'm pulling it back so you can see who I am, the Son of Man, the second person of the Trinity. I am the one who has been given all authority. I love the the phrase that he's been given all authority. You know what that means? That means that it came from someone else. And so God the Father who has all this authority is giving it to his son. He's placing everything under his feet. And we're making this, this statement or this point be very large so that we can see this Jesus that we are called to serve is the one and only way of salvation. He's the one and only king, king of kings and lord of lords. There's no one else like him. That's what makes it illegitimate to follow another religion or to follow another leader because only Jesus has all authority. Only Jesus can forgive sins. Only Jesus has power over life and death. So someone comes to us and says, well, isn't the point of religion to make good people? No. The point of all religions is not to make better moral people. The point of Christianity is to save forgiven sinners, and only Jesus can do that. And he's making the point to his disciples as he appears to him, appears to them here that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And so he sends them on a mission with that authority. And we take a look now at verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And So, number two, that uh, uh, since the resurrected Christ has been given all authority, those who follow him must teach people from every nation to follow him. We are given a mission. Therefore, or because of all this authority, go, make disciples. So there's one command in this verse, right? It's this command. Make disciples. This is what all of us should be about. We should make disciples with our life. And so we'll we'll read it uh, uh, trying to understand, well, what is the going and what is the baptizing and what does the teaching have to do with it? Aren't we all commanded to go and baptize and teach? Well, we're all commanded to make disciples. And we make disciples by going. So you go to work. Make disciples as you are going to work. Make disciples as you are going on a walk in your neighborhood. Make disciples as you are going to be a neighbor. Uh, make disciples as you are going to get married. Make disciples as you are going in your life. Right? So, so the, the command is that all of us who have grown up and understand who Jesus is and understand his authority should go make disciples. Can I just. This command is not to the 11. I love the fact that we don't know how many people are gathered here. We don't know if there's 11 or 500. I think that's great. The bottom line is it doesn't matter if you're a capital D disciple who was called by Jesus and followed him for three years and then he died and rose again and and said these words to you, or if it's you and me today in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, these words are uh, a command over your life and my life as we grow up in Jesus. Make disciples. So the next eight weeks, we're going to say, well, okay, how do we do that? We're not going to fully answer the question today, but we are going to point out some principles here that we can learn from this passage. The first thing we see is that it's a command to the disciple. If you're newer to this church, you are not commanded to get in a discipling relationship with somebody. Right? The people who understand the doctrines of Scripture and understand who Jesus is, are commanded to make disciples. So the command is on us, who know Jesus. That's not a a, a Gary thing, it's not an elder thing, it's not a deacon thing, it's not a somebody who's been here 10 years thing, it's everybody who's been converted to Jesus and has grown and understand who he is, is called to make disciples, to teach others, to make others learn of who Jesus is, all of us. So that command is to you. A command implies a process. Make disciples. What is that? Uh, well, let's look at Jesus, okay? He, he went around and called 12 guys to follow him. So he took initiative to go to them and say, would you, you follow me? We don't have any record of people of him saying, you follow me, and they denied it or, or declined it. But nonetheless, Jesus is the one going to them. Keep this in mind. He called 12. This passage says, now the 11 went to Galilee. Oh, can you imagine the broken heart of Jesus knowing that Judas was such a betrayer? Discipleship is a process and it's messy. And you may start with four and wind up with three or start with six and wind up with one. Your heart will be broken. Right? as you take initiative to invite others to be a learner and to learn of Jesus' ways, man, it can be a heart-wrenching thing. And Jesus is here showing us that even Jesus Christ, even the perfect one, even the all-powerful one, lost one along the way or had one in his midst who was never truly born again. The next thing we notice is that it's an undefined time period. How long does it take to make someone a disciple? I don't know. I don't know. I think the answer is different depending on the discipler, the one who's teaching, and the learner, the one who, who, well, who's learning. The answer can be different. Jesus was Jesus. So he had the start time, and he kept telling them through the start time, hey, guys, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And they kept saying, nah, you're not leaving. He kept saying, get behind me, Satan. I'm leaving. I've got to do this God's way. And he came to the point where he left. So discipleship over, you know, you you hope they're ready. So for you and me, we don't have a definite, like we're going to start on January, you know, 31st, 2000, whatever, and and, and that's going to go for three exact years, and we're going to do it just like you. We don't have that. What we have is an ongoing process we're committed to to teach others of Jesus' ways. We know what the body of work is that we should be uh, uh, communicating to the learner, We should be teaching that learner about the Old Testament and how the Old Testament is the promise of God to send a Redeemer, to make for himself a name, and to to bless the world through the people of Israel. And the ultimate blessing of the world of the people of Israel was that he sent Jesus into this world. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And we need to teach people about that. We need to teach him who he was and what he did to understand what the nature of his work is and how conversion works and and what it looks like to be in Christ and how it's somewhat mysterious. The wind blows according to John chapter 3. But you must be born again. And so, so we're called to teach people these things, and we don't know necessarily always how long that's going to take. We're also called to teach people these things according to their own life. So so we, that really implies that there's this big, huge, relational context to discipleship. Can I just tell you, in my life, I think this is the thing I struggle with the most. Jesus made himself available to 12 guys and his whole life, day in and day out, was teaching them his ways, teaching him scriptures, encouraging them to pray, feeding people and announcing the gospel to others. And so we have this example of him living in the midst of his disciples, And let me just say this, that a three-year process of discipleship, it seems like he devoted himself more to them time-wise at the end of the process than he did at the beginning. So more and more and more he's available to them, to these 12 guys, as he disciples them. Now, we don't, we don't live in a world where guys hang out together hour and hour and hour, hour after hour, all day long. We just don't live in a world like that. So I don't believe that we are called to try to make 2015 Sheboygan into first century Jerusalem, to make our lives like that. We're not called to that. But here's what we are called to do, to be in each other's lives. We're called to have such a close relationship that that if if there's a discipleship thing going on, that that discipler can look into the life of of the person he's teaching the ways of Jesus and say, listen, there's an anxiety thing here. There's a fear thing here. There's a disobedience with money thing here. Do you really talk to your kids like that? Right? So that we are teaching the people around us the fullness of what it means to follow after Jesus and not just a bunch of information. We don't want our disciples to know all the doctrines but not apply them to their life because discipleship doesn't imply information. It implies implies learning the lesson. So we want to learn the lesson to observe the commands, not just to know the commands. And that's what verse uh, 19 and 20 get to in just a minute. So this discipleship process, it says, look, go therefore and make disciples. You and I are called to make disciples as we are going. And, and the, the means by which we'll do that is the baptizing, baptizing and the teaching. Guys, baptizing, we should, be, we should be training the people around us to understand what baptizing is all about. You realize that when we are born into this world, we are God's enemy. The song that Bennett led us in a little while ago, it said, once your enemy, now seated at your table. And so we aren't seated at God's table as some outsider who is a servant who just gets to eat some crumbs. Do you know that he has lavished his love on us? Do you know that that to be a To be at his table means that we are no longer servants, but we are sons, fully adopted into God's family. Do you see the huge identity change that has taken place when you used to be outside and going your own way, the object of wrath, but he has adopted you into his family? Baptism is helping you understand that God the Father has adopted you because we baptize you in the name of the Father. We baptize in the name of the Son. And so when we baptize someone, we help them understand that they used to be the the object of God's wrath, but Christ has bore the punishment of that sin. He has taken the wrath of God against your sin and my sin and we had no ability to walk in newness of life because we were dead in our sins, Jesus rose again the third day. These people are experiencing a Jesus risen before them, standing in their presence going, he has conquered death and hell. If he lives, I can live forever. And then he's he's saying to these guys, listen, I'm leaving, and I'm going to leave the Spirit for you, and it's going to be good for you that I go. He doesn't do this in Matthew chapter 28, but if you want an explanation of Matthew 28, 20, go to John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 and read about the ministry of the Spirit. That it's good that Jesus is going because now God is going to take up residence by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so we need to teach about baptism. Baptism that your identity used to be object of God's wrath. It used to be you didn't love, but instead you hated Jesus, and you could care less about the Holy Spirit and his work in this life. But now I stand before the whole world, and I am baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, And I am making a statement that everything about my identity in this world has been completely changed by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's not a huge deal in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. But it's a big deal in India, Turkey. People lose their lives because they get baptized in the Middle East. And God has called us to stand before one another and announced everybody, listen, I'm not trusting my Catholic work. I'm not trusting my Lutheran heritage. I'm not trusting the faith of a parent. I'm not trusting anything but the work that Jesus did. And I want to identify publicly with Christ in his death and resurrection. And so listen, listen, Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, I'm going to get baptized in their name. If you've never been baptized, can I just really encourage you to consider that that's that's a step of obedience, that this passage was preached to adults, that that Jesus' words here were given to his disciples who are adults. He was saying to them, go preach the gospel and convert adults so that when they respond with their will, they should get baptized. Right? And I'm not throwing stones at you if you were baptized as an infant. I'm simply saying that the, the balance of New Testament, teach, New Testament teaching seems to show us that when someone can engage their will to trust Jesus, that then they stand before the world and say, my identity is not in the things of the past or in the works of man. I cannot add anything to what Christ has done. I fully identify myself in God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and I am showing my identity to the world. I encourage you to consider that if you've never done that before. And so, those who follow him must teach people from every nation to follow him. Can I just really encourage you that there's an ethnic situation here going on? You see that? We need to make certain that we remove hurdles that are... um, that are ethnic as, as well as we can. We need to make sure that we are not creating hurdles and keeping hurdles in place that are uh, nationalistic or racial in the way that uh, they trip people up. We've got to remove those things. and We've got to figure out how to bring the gospel to people of, of every tribe and tongue. So the first trouble in the church in Acts chapter 6, the Hellenists, that just means the Greek Christians, were coming to the Jewish Christians and saying, hey, you guys are overlooking our, there's a, there's a problem here. There's an ethnic problem here. And they said, yeah, let's, okay, let's get some deacons and fix that problem. Let's let the church fix the racial problem by making sure everybody gets served. Okay? So the church is called to bring the gospel everyone can i remind you that when this was taught it was this was taught in galilee this was taught to a bunch of jewish people this was taught to, to a group of people none of them spoke english But if you have heard and responded to the gospel in English in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, you are living proof of discipleship that Christ called his people to take the good news to Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world, and you are living as far from Jerusalem as anyone can live, speaking a completely foreign language from what was known in the day. And missions has had an impact on your life because this church at one point... uh, Came from the heart of missions. Do you know that we didn't even, that in 1871, when this church was founded on Indiana Avenue, that uh, the pastors spoke Norwegian for 60 years? That nor, the, the passages or the, the preaching that took place in this church for right up into the 1930s and 40s until the time of Ellis Mooney, that the, the uh, language spoken was Norwegian. There was no English speaker here. That's crazy! And so now you and I think it's very normal that for the last 65 years we've heard preaching in English. But listen, they they tore down some racial ethnic problems. Look at the passage again in in verse 19. Go therefore make disciples of all nations. Why why is that amazing? Hey, we Jewish guys we signed up to follow the Jewish guy. What are you talking about all nations? What do you mean by that? Didn't your whole ministry, you heal people and keep saying, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. Didn't you say to that one woman, I've come for the house of Israel. And she said, well, yeah, but even the dogs get a scrap from the table from time to time. And he threw her a scrap. And the, the, the disciples want to be a, a scrap-throwing kind of a cadre. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 Listen. Take this discipleship to all nations. Remove the ethnic barriers. Listen, we're not going to remove the ethnic barriers as a church in this room until all of us out there in the streets of Sheboygan have removed the ethnic barriers in our brain and our hearts. And we start making friends with everybody. And we start trying to figure out how to make friends with our Hmong neighbor or our Hispanic guy two doors down or the African-American guy three doors down or my, my workmate who says I, I have my own way to worship. And we say, well, okay, you can have your own way to worship, but listen, here's my life mission, make disciples. I'm all about that. And so regardless of race, I want to remove these barriers so that we can make disciples, right? And so that's our heart, that we remove these these ethnic barriers together. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The only thing I want to say there is that we always believe, of course, that teaching is a part and parcel to discipleship. I mean, Jesus taught his disciples all the time. And even though they knew things, he kept teaching it to them. So we should constantly be learning. Satan is the father of lies. So his favorite thing is to lie to us. And so what we need is to be taught. So let's say that you are a, div- uh, a mature follower of Jesus. You don't grow up to the point where that's just all you do. You just disciple people and you've arrived. Hebrews chapter 10 says, man, as you mature in your faith, you're going to need each other all the more. You're going to need to devote yourself to hearing the word. In fact, don't stop coming together as the manner of some people is. In fact, you're going to need each other more and more as the days get darker and persecution comes in. You're going to need each other to spur one another on to good works because you're going to lose that focus if you don't meet together on a regular basis. So even though we meet one-on-one and in small groups of people to teach people specifically about Jesus and his work from the Old Testament to the New, we still need this. We still need the teaching and the encouragement and the testimony. We still need the, the, to see the work going on in the life of somebody else so that we can be reminded how good God is to us. Listen, this discipleship process is a messy undefined thing where we definitely are teaching people who Jesus is from old to new. So we have a defined body of work but an undefined time period that we uh, we teach these things to people. Can I just use the illustration before we move to our last point? If we're going to be good disciplers, I think we shouldn't think of like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to disciple for three years and then done and then move on and then I'm going to do it again I'm going to do it with three people or six people. I think we should think of it more like we do parenting. And if you're in here today and you're waiting for the Lord to bless you with a child, or you have an adult kid who's not walking with the Lord, I'm not trying to needle you at all. I'm just saying the the normal process of parenting is we have a little baby who knows nothing about Jesus. He sees, she sees Jesus in us as he gets a little bit older. And we teach him appropriate things at the right time of life so they are exposed to the commands of Jesus and they mature more and more throughout their life. We are teaching them the ways of Jesus in maturity, preparing them for that time when they will be launched from our house. And there will be a moment when your son stands and my son stands or daughter at an altar and commits their life to someone else. And now says... I am going to lead you in the things that I know about Jesus for the rest of my life. And if the Lord blesses us with kids, we're going we're to raise them in the ways of the Lord. So how long did that take? 20 years. Was it always easy, messy as can be? Did it drive you nuts? Absolutely. Have we lost some along the way? Most of us, I hope, would, would not say yes. We'll say, we're still praying about that. We're still praying about that. Is God good? When the relationships are messy, we weren't quite sure we went far enough, and we don't know if our job is done, yeah, he's good. I think that's the process, of dis- the best picture for discipleship in the church. Undefined, messy available all the time. Your kid always want to talk to you when you did not want to talk to him. I do not do two in the morning. I do not do texting. I don't want to do this. But you do it. Because that's when they're ready. And that's how we do it with discipleship as well. Can I just say my heart is so convicted of this that I want to do this better. And if you're looking at your life of discipleship and saying, man... Because this isn't for the, like I said before, the elders and deacons, this is all of us. You know the ways of Jesus, it's for you. All of us. But we close up by saying, well, isn't this going to be a pretty hard task? Yeah, it's going to be a hard task. Can you imagine Paul going over to Athens and saying, now look at these guys with all these idols. They have no sense of the Bible whatsoever. Where am I even going to start making a disciple in this place? And if you're at South High School and you're a student and you look down the halls and you, you probably are thinking, where am I going to start? If you work at a factory in Sheboygan County and you're working, you're, you're doing your thing, where am I going to start? I'm trying to explain Jesus. This guy's been a Catholic his whole life and tells me he's a Christian. Where am I even going to start with my kids? Where am I even going to start in my profession? Where am I even going to start? Jesus anticipates that that's going to be a big question. And so he says in verse 20, I want you to teach them, observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Oh, I love that. So this week where you failed to go for the opportunity to evangelize, He's with you. He forgives you. My heart and prayer is that he's going to bring you another opportunity this week and that you're feeling an appropriate level of uh, conviction in your heart. That maybe you're the one that God has positioned in that moment, in that place, to evangelize. And if your kid, listen, uh, if there's somebody in your family and you're trying to win them to Jesus, it's possible they feel like you're too pushy. It's not all up to you. Pray. It's all up to God. I'm not saying never talk to your family members about God. I'm saying talk to God about your family member's relationship with God. If right now, the season in your life, you are not seeing fruit, it's not up to you to produce fruit. It's up to you to wait on the Lord and ask that the Lord would provide somebody they will listen to. Can I just encourage your heart today? Just because you're not the one doing it doesn't mean it's not going to get done. God is good, and he is faithful. I encourage you to pray. Listen, he's with you. John 13 through 17, as I said already, Jesus left so he could minister to us. And can I just say to you that these, this verse, that I am with you always to the end of the age, it's not a promise. That is my, one of my favorite points of this whole passage. It's not a promise. The promise is, your, your dad says, one day I'm going to give you X number of dollars, and uh, it's going to be before this time frame, and so live your life based on that. And you think, okay, well, money's coming. Uh, it's a promise. Money's going to be here. That's not what this passage says. This passage says, the money is here. This passage says, if Jesus is left, he will send the Spirit. So you don't have a promise that the Spirit will come someday. You have the Spirit living in you to do these things. So as you stand before Athens and consider the task, or as you stand in the halls of Oostburg High School and consider the task, as you stand at the door of your crying neighbor and consider the task, Jesus is with you in the person of the Holy Spirit in your heart right now. He's with you all the days of your life. So guys, I want us to be a church or we take out that bulletin and read because it's scripture making fully devoted followers of Jesus. And we say listen, all the authority in the world is given only to Jesus Christ. He's the only risen savior. He is the son of man. And so we are going to make disciples through uh, baptizing and teaching and going with our life. We're going to make disciples every day. And when it is hard and it will be hard and messy and we don't know what to do next, Oh man, we are going to take such comfort in knowing He's with us as we do this together. Just stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, I thank you that these next weeks, the A, B, C of what to do next will be taught and become a little bit clearer. And I pray no one is right now feeling some kind of weird, like, guilt, that they're not doing more. The reality is the the disciples knew of you, loved you, and needed you to come face-to-face with them and say, okay, guys, this is up to you, and I'll be with you as you do it. Father, I pray for life groups who would seek to live this out together and I pray for adult Bible fellowships who, who seek to follow you together and I thank you for these groups of people that want to take what we hear taught on Sunday mornings and work it out in real life. We need help. And I pray where we need to grow up or learn new methods or, or, or just uh, like, like uh, risk ourselves to one another that you would give a boldness to us. I pray that the elders and deacons and, and many others would be willing to uh, not just put themselves out there, so many of them are already doing this, but, but to tell the stories of how they're putting themselves out there so that everybody can see pictures in the congregation of where this is happening, and we can celebrate and, and, and rejoice that you're doing this. And Lord, where we're not doing it as as well as we could or where we need to grow, we trust your spirit to forgive us. Help us move on and move ahead together. So we commit this day to you asking for help now as we head home in the snow. In Jesus' name, amen.